What's up, guys? On today's podcast, we have Kelly Markey, and she tells us her story on how she goes from eBay to 625-mile walk in Spain to founding Dorothy's house. What's up, Kelly? What's up, Grub? One thing, I, I, I like the fact that when people do say, what's up, girl, they smile. Yeah. <laughs> right, right? So we met earlier this year, and uh, we were talking before. It was one of the most, it was a very impactful conversation for me. Uh, I thought it was a very powerful listening to your story, your journey, the work that you do. And what was really interesting, I think, from our conversation was, we sort of had this discussion, not sort of, we had this discussion about understanding our value and being aware of our vulnerabilities. And ironically, up on my board, I had that exact same conversation that I had had with my team that morning. So I had to figure out a way to, I wish I could have documented that conversation. So it is because of you that I, we have this podcast and really leading up to this moment has sort of been a bit of practice but it really inspired me. Your story inspired me and empowered me to want to be able to have a platform to have that conversation for people to learn to live well with vulnerability. So thank you for that. Well, that's, I'm honored. <laughs> so here's where I do want to start. You know, we talk about to know your value is to be aware of your vulnerabilities and to be able to live well with your vulnerability is to know your value. And you are the founder of Dorothy's House. So explain for us what Dorothy's House is. And then also give us a sense of what kind of vulnerability you experience in the work you do. So Dorothy's House, it's our mission to be a safe place for the practice of life for those individuals whose lives have been interrupted by sex trafficking and exploitation in Iowa. And... I think I was vulnerable completely in the process of starting this organization um, due to lack of credibility in the human services space. Um, and the fact that even though I very much approached founding Dorothy's House as a business, um, our product is people. And you don't have any room to make mistakes um, when you're helping people recover their lives. What unpack for us some of the vulnerability that you experience and some of the stories of, of the folks that are coming into Dorothy's house. I oftentimes talk about the darkness in the space in which we work in and the story of the first girl who moved in with us was so incredibly dark. And I kept thinking to myself, how is it possible that the very first girl we get, uh, is the worst possible case of sex trafficking you can wrap your head around, if you can even wrap your head around it. And then the next girl walked in the door. And I think what you realize is when you're working in this space, it is not very common to have relationship be the foundation of your interactions with individuals in the, in the recovery space. And the opportunity to build a relationship, it doesn't matter what her experience was. The next one is always the worst. Is it in sort of the lens in which they see it? I mean, 
I feel like each person would have that just in general, like in life, right? Like you don't know what I'm going through. They certainly believe that about me. I'm very much what they might call a normie. Um, it's almost like in the addiction space, someone who hasn't experienced what they've experienced. But what is so awesome about Dorothy's house is they all kind of go through different phases in recovery and that poor me and, oh my gosh, what happened to me is the worst thing ever, that peer supportive environment where they hear someone else say, oh, you know what, my story is like that, but not exactly the same, let me tell you about it. And, and all of a sudden they have a network, um, a, a small network of people who really do understand. What's interesting to me about our conversation before was your ability to navigate in, in sort of the darkness, right? And I feel like you're experiencing the most vulnerable of vulnerable in a sense. Is that fair? Absolutely. And so your journey to that point, uh, unpack and go go all the way back to the beginning because what I think is interesting is you were not in the 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 health side of things I mean you started in the business world walk us through that well I did have a career in marketing and business development for 15 years and most of that was outside of Des Moines and so when I moved back here um, I decided that volunteerism would be a really good way to connect with the community, make friends, and maybe find a new career path. And um, found it very challenging from the job side of things. Uh, and most of the advice I was given was to start volunteering. So I started working with teen girls uh, in this community and was just blown away by the nature and severity of abuse against children in our community. I had no idea what kids are surviving in our city and state. And at some point in that process, having met some girls whose sense of hope and optimism did not come from their lives. It came from some other place of knowing that the world owed them a little bit more, um, but they didn't know what it meant from their experiences left me feeling like I wasn't just doing enough. Showing up two times a week and painting fingernails and doing crafts didn't seem like the right fit for my contribution. And I started my um, foster parenting license. Um, and it took me, it takes about 10 weeks to go through that once the class starts. And eventually became a foster parent. But in that process, had started talking to a lot of people about the issue of abuse against children in our community and also the age of the, the aging out of children of our care systems because these kids are not going back home. They're going out on their own and they are ill-equipped to be successful independently. And those are sort of the two concepts that sort of propelled me forward um, and thinking if I might, I might help fewer people as a foster parent, but I might help them more than what I am now. And I was a house flipper um, at that time and uh, finally, you know, had a, a foster placement in my home, was flipping a house when I tripped over the house that is now Dorothy's house. What was that moment like when you walked into that house? I mean, it wasn't like a, oh, I think I'm going to do this. It was a, you were very much drawn. Yeah, it was just pure inspiration. I was flipping three homes at the time on the east side in Des Moines. I had a new foster placement. I didn't really need anything else in my life. And I was picking up one of my homeless guys that morning 
and we drove past a house in a neighborhood maybe you wouldn't choose to flip or certainly a condition of a home that would be a lot of work. And the house had a giant banner on the side of it with a phone number that was intriguing to me. Uh, and so I called and a week later got in the house and it was October 13th of 2013. I'll never forget. And walked in from the back door through the house to the front door. Sun is setting on a beautiful fall day and literally coming through the windows on the front door. And I knew what the name of the house was that day. And I knew that we would be helping girls there. How did you come up with Dorothy's house? Where did that name come from? So Dorothy represents all the girls who are in our systems of care, who have this sense of hope and optimism for their lives, but don't know where it came from. Um, they have had been abused, and you know, in some cases, it's a miracle they're still alive at 16 or 17 years old, given what they've endured, um, but they still believe that there's more to life than what they've experienced so far. You know, you said earlier about um, with the kids, their sense of self-worth, right? Uh, they lose that or they apply that and, and give that in the hands of somebody else. How does that transition start to where they start to claim their lives back and say, hey, uh, I'm in control of my own self-worth and self-dignity rather than empowering somebody else with it? Yeah, it varies a great deal depending on the circumstance of each individual which is why our program is so focused on their goals and their needs, not what we want to offer them, but what they need back from the world. And it for some girls, you know, they maybe had a two-week experience from a bad decision on social media to a woman who grew up with her earliest memories of abuse and molestation and all, all manner of, of just trauma um, that led to ultimately her being vulnerable to being trafficked. And so the recovery process is widely varied depending on those experiences. Is there a common thread though? I mean, for that, for that first step? Yeah. I mean, I remember you saying, you know, what's one of the first things you do? We give them a pillow you know, we give them a bed and we don't ask for anything else in return. Yeah. It, what is the common thread at least in those first couple steps. Finding safety. Um, for all of them, you know, the hypervigilance and the fear um, in an environment where abuse is oftentimes systematic, it's oftentimes torture, uh, so that control is absolute. The level of man manipulation involved in this space is profound and, and rules those relationships. It's artificial relationships. And so they're very confused about safety and about safe relationships. And so we give them a place and we reduce our expectations until a point at which they realize that we're going to keep doing what we say we're going to do until they're ready to accept it. And they find that level of safety and then the work really begins. Once you get to the work, how does the program, I mean, is there a set path or program or, I mean, I think if you look at uh, drug addiction or alcoholism or even in mental health, there's sort of a prescriptive path. Is it a prescriptive path in this also where they sort of go through these steps in order? 
Yeah, although not necessarily always in order because we find that the needs are so different, but we look at 25 different life domains and and their stability in those domains to come up with a risk score. It's a risk assessment. And it looks at basic needs like housing, food, clothing, things like that, to parenting skills, to education, to job skills. And of those 25 domains, there might be 15 or 17 that are relevant to a girl, not all 25. And then from those life domains, they develop goals. Uh, And depending on what those goals are, because we may have a girl who has a college education and a girl who hasn't finished high school yet. So education is going to be a very different goal, but those domains allow them to establish goals that allow us then to apply resources against it. So the process is the same for each girl, and then the work that we apply to it is different depending on what her needs are. You've talked also about uh, that it's not usually an unknown person. It's usually like a closer relationship or a family member where I feel like some of the most twisted ones are mom. Um, where, what is sort of that? I think a lot of people would ask, like, how do you get to this position? Like, how do you get to this place? And it's not a, oh, you know, this leap. It's this sort of slow erosion of truth. Well, every, I think every single case of sex trafficking that we have seen for sure and in general is an environment of false relationship um, or a relationship-based experience. And when I say false relationship, it could be somebody who has a network of people who recruit and train, and the ultimate trafficker um, will provide resource, love, affection, whatever is missing in this individual's life uh, in order to convince them to do what they want them to do. And it's through manipulation and abuse and a lot of other things, but it creates a lot of confusion about what a safe relationship is. In a family environment, you know, I, I refer to this idea of false relationship because so often mental health and addiction is part of that experience. Um, but, you know, we, we see this problem in the traditional pimp space where a recruiter starts that relationship. We see it in the drug industry where a girl is maybe starting to move or a boy is starting to move into that space and they provide that opportunity. Drug dealers know that you can sell a drug once, but you can sell a person on both ends of that transaction. And then mostly what we see is that place-based thing. So one of my least favorite comments I will hear from a girl is mom's boyfriend who deals drugs. Unpack that more. What do you mean by that? So mom, maybe now divorced, boyfriend moves in, 12, 13, 14-year-old girl in the house. Um, He's dealing drugs, maybe has very unsavory characters coming to and from the house or in their life, and she becomes part of that business. Really? And, And mom is participating in that, or mom is unknowingly participating in that? Complicit, I would say. More often than not. And sometimes mom is also the trafficker. Got it. Or the groomer or the abuser, the you know, the enforcer. There are a lot of roles that get played in these relationships. And there's always somebody who saves somebody. And there's always somebody who reminds them that we're going to do what we say we're going to do unless you do what we need. As you, I feel like as somebody's going in this journey... 
Um, is there, I guess, as they, as they start through their recovery process and they're sort of reflecting back, is there that sort of relationship that like once that one turns or that one goes that they, they feel overwhelmingly isolated? Yeah, social isolation, I think, is the greatest fear for girls who get through our program and are probably ready to move on from our program. But the fear of social isolation and the mistakes they've made in relationships is probably the greatest underlying fear. I mean, I I think everybody on some level wrestles with that, right? Whether it's at work or in a relationship or especially like in high school, college, you feel I'm the only person that's going through this. I have no one to talk to. The one person that I had was my boyfriend or my girlfriend, and now they don't want to be with me anymore. And now I'm all alone. I don't feel comfortable going to my mom or my, I don't have that sort of family structure. And I feel like for most people, time, they sort of just grow through that. What is it for these girls that at at a Dorothy's house or through these relationships that you're able to repair the hope through relationships? I'm not sure that's what we do. Um, I think that what we try to do is bring some sense of realism to what it means to have relationship. And so like healthy relation, how do you have a healthy how do you make good decisions around relationships and have a good sense of boundaries in relationships, depending on who those relationships are with? And so what we, we try to do is, first of all, you know, these individuals have many, many fractured relationships in their families, in their friendships, and helping them come to terms with what if those relationships aren't part of your life moving forward? Your relationship with your mother is a, a critical one because everybody wants relationship with their mother no matter what and so is it repairable and are you able to forgive and if you are what do you want from that relationship moving forward and then how do you create boundaries around that to make sure that you keep yourself safe in it your heart and yourself personally and so we kind of you know talk about all of these concepts in the programming that helps them make better decisions around their relationships and really understand what they hope. And then we help them understand that relationships come in a wide variety of forms, whether it's a single serving friend that you meet on with somebody on a bus across town versus somebody who you have a lifetime relationship with. I think this would be a tough part. Like as you're saying, you know, as you're sharing your insight on the work that you do, is it hard not to sort of look at like the general society and, and in general of folks um, that are in sort of their struggle and not get sort of frustrated by uh, the level of importance? And I think, too, the way that society defines success and chases self-worth and self-dignity in that. How do you wrestle with that between the work that you do and then just the culture that we currently have? So, you know, success in our space is oftentimes anecdotal. Um, It's not based on, we certainly have, you know, an assessment process and, you know, tracking against those assessments and the progress that these kids make. But success for me comes in the the little anecdotes that, that come up 
every single day in the process of healing because it's not something that just happens all of a sudden. It happens in little bits and pieces over time. So I was sitting with a gal having a conversation about her transition plan, and she said, you know, the best gift I got from this place is you reminded me I was smart or you taught me that I was smart. Because once I learned that, and even though I'm still learning it and have to be reminded, it gave me power. And I had a gal who told me, you know what, I promised myself I would never tell you that I love laundry day. And I don't think the fact, I don't think she actually loves the fact of laundry day. I think she loves the fact that in the practice of life, she learns how to organize her time. She learns how to prioritize things. She learns how to be in control of her life and space and the little things that we do that are what you might do in any household um, is just practicing life. It's amazing how powerful, simple order and structure can be. On some level, everyone needs some structure to their time and to their space. And most of these kids have lived in just abject chaos. So removing chaos is chaotic for them, and they have to relearn. And it takes time. I feel like it would be hard. That's sort of what you know. So you could almost, I mean, I think in general, sometimes there's folks that um, it just seems like they they sort of sabotage order. Yeah, absolutely they do. Because it feels more normal to them to yeah. feel chaotic. Right. And you're going to leave me anyways. You're going to do something bad to me anyway. So I'm going to sort of I'm going to, I'm going to hurt you. One of my favorite quotes is don't injure others because you're afraid to be vulnerable. Yeah. And I feel like that would be sort of the trap is to say, you know what, I'm going to hurt you before you get a chance to hurt me. Do you have to wrestle through that and sort of be patient in that at times? Oh, every single day, because it's almost like boundary checking in childhood. How far can I push you before you kick me out? They want to know how far they can go in terms of bad behavior, whatever that may be, before we give up on them. Because everybody else that they know has given up on them. And so it is. it requires the patience of a statue, um, which my staff is tremendous at. Um, thank goodness now I have a full-time staff that requires me to not do as much of it because it's so much more emotional for me in some ways. Um, but yeah, it's really challenging. How do you work with your team? I mean, what kind of training do you guys do? I feel there would need to be a sense of boundaries for you and boundaries for your team. How do you establish that? We learned over time how to do it. And we wrote our policy book, our handbook, over a long period of time uh, for, from just a different experiences in the house. And we start with the foundation of this idea of, of what a safe, a practice of life looks like in a, in a household environment where the home is the girls and we're just there to keep the ship righted. Um, and in order to maintain some, some sense of order in that process, um, we do certainly have boundaries and, and rules and um, expectations and things like that because you need an environment where you can set consequences, um, even though we're strength-based and consequences don't ever involve punishment. Um, it's just really, really complicated, and we just learn from experience. How do you feel like the work you do now is similar to the work you were doing at eBay? Just in terms of self-worth, 
dignity, living well with vulnerability. What are some of those common, because it was a transformation for you, right? I mean, you were 16 years at eBay. I mean, kind of explain a little bit more to your career history there. Cause I mean, you were a, an extremely driven, successful, you know, in, 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 the in the general term, a very successful driven businesswoman, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think Still Many am. I think so. Yeah. Right. Um, well, I was at eBay for five years. Yeah, oh, got of it. Of my total marketing and business development career. Got it. Uh, go through your career there a little bit more. And then where are some of the similarities in terms of vulnerability? Because obviously there was something there that that you were more passionate about and it just didn't resonate. Well, what was that? I think one of the most fascinating things about my time at eBay. So I started... Um, in 1999 and was employee number 189. And five years later, almost to the day, we had peaked 8,000 employees globally. And so that kind of growth uh, in a company that when I started, you know, we didn't really have a proper facilities or HR department. It was mostly engineers keeping the site running. Um, was just, it was just a constant learning environment and and adjusting and adapting it was very highly competitive um, and fragmented in a lot of ways even for a very small company um, but just fascinating and so at Dorothy's house uh, you know I wouldn't say we have a competitive environment um, but it is constant learning the the brain science attached to helping people recover from trauma is just incredible. And and I know very little about it except for what I've learned and read about. And so I love the opportunity to keep learning and growing and especially so far outside of my traditional field career choice. Um, but applying that every single day and finding ways to build credibility where there was none when we started. And now we have girls graduating our program. We're seeing change, you know, they are affecting change in their lives and it just keeps getting better. How do you go from there to here though? I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're in this business environment and now we're at Dorothy's house. I mean, what, what sort of happened in the middle sort of in your spirit and your soul that said, there's something more and deeper for me that I'm going to leave this. Cause it's not like this fell apart. Right. And like drove us over here. There was a restlessness. What happened in the middle? Yeah. So the leaving of eBay, you know, I think the question that is useful for anybody who's in that process of building a career um, is to just figure out how much is enough um, because you're married to your job. Your life is your job and your career. And uh, leaving for me was complicated uh, because I had spent my entire career leaning my ladder up against that wall and defining myself based on my revenue responsibility, the number of employees that I had, um, you know, just everything, you know, what my feedback was from my boss, my bonus structure, that's how I valued myself and, and how I described who I was as a person. And so when I left, I was kind of in this place of midlife crisis because I didn't have an elevator pitch. I remember going to a, a Des Moines magazine launch party and somebody asked me what I did and 
was kind of stumbling over, you know, I'm playing a little golf and kind of hanging out a little bit. And my sister-in-law told me, you just need a better elevator pitch. And um, during this time, I completed my captain's license as a sailor. Um, I played a lot of golf with my dad, um, traveled, um, moved outside of Des Moines again for some period of time. And then at the end of that period, I took an opportunity to walk the Camino de Santiago. Um, it's a 625-mile spiritual journey across the northern coast of Spain. And finally decided Des Moines was going to be my final home, um, my landing place. And that was when my volunteerism started. 625 miles on foot, alone, Yes, in a group. And alone. You do it primarily alone. Primarily. But there are other people doing it. Yeah. Uh, but I yeah. mean, you're meeting folks yeah. along the way. Yeah. How long does it take to walk 625 miles? It, you know, it varies um, by person, but about a month. It took me 31 days. And just camped? Uh, you, so the, Spain is really organized around providing services. So you stay in what is a, essentially a hostel at night. Um, so probably every, you could probably stop every three to five miles and find somewhere to sleep indoors. When you reflect back on that time, what did you find on that walk? There's nothing like, I've traveled a lot in my life and there's nothing like coming into a city or town or village through the back door on foot. You can come by planes, trains, automobiles, but to walk into a village and a town is a, an experience that everybody should have when they're traveling. Um, it just gives you such a different perspective on places and people, and you're welcomed differently, especially as a pilgrim on, on this journey. Um, but for me, it was reflection, and it was, you know, constantly struggling with that who is Kelly Markey if she doesn't define herself by her revenue responsibility. And, and it just gave me some peace and some permission uh, to, to look in a different direction. It's interesting that you say permission, right? I mean, I think whether we're talking about really anybody, uh, one of the best stories that I heard is a favorite story. We um, we had Doug Eklund on. He wrote this book called The 9 a.m. Meeting, and he talks about jumping fleas. And they put the fleas in this jar, and they jump right out. And then they put the fleas in the jar, and they put the lid on. And the fleas jump. And after about an hour, they essentially get concussed, and they stop jumping. What was really fascinating is the next day they take the lid off, and the fleas don't leave. They've been concussed, Yeah. right? And the only way to get them to come out of the jar is put a little bit of heat underneath the jar, right? And slowly, as the heat got up, all the fleas jumped out. But what's interesting, like with permission, it's like in a way we have to give ourselves permission to come out of the jar because we think there's a lid there or we've been told that there's a lid there or we're concussed that we can't do this. You have to go in this box. But the reality is, there is no lid. Right. I don't need permission, you know? And that's what I've, that's what I found most impactful from your story. And as I reflect upon just my own journey, it was giving myself that permission to take control of my own self-worth and my own self-dignity. I'm in a family business, right? So it's easy to put that in other people or what now I'm going to do in my seat and my own self-worth and self-dignity is 
you know, dictated again by revenue or sales or units or this scoreboard over here. So how do you sort of redefine and have purpose drive the profit rather than sort of the profit drive the purpose? And I think there's that sort of end goal that everybody looks at, like, well, that's, I'll be successful, you know, once I get to that point. And even in the work that you do now, I think it's interesting to hear you say, I took control of my own self-worth and you've created this lane now for other women to be able to do that. And I feel like everybody's really going through that on some level, wherever they're at. And, and if they've had a place in this, in this dark place, right? It's, it's harder to get out of, of that. But to your point, like, I feel like even the kid um, that lives in the suburbs and has more order still feels like his story is the worst story on some level. And it's about him taking accountability and his self-worth or her self-worth and dignity really comes from within, right? And that's what I love about your story, whether it's from a business perspective or a nonprofit perspective. It's to your point. It's it, the, the, the customer is human beings. That's the story. Yeah, and I think when you talk about that, you know, so much expectation comes externally and is pushed on you. And when you turn it around and set your expectations for yourself, it was very difficult for me to change my expectations um, to not continue on a career. Many people, I was very young when I left eBay and, well, all things being relative, but, um, but to stop in the middle of that career trajectory and not continue against those same level of expectations, I think people were very confused by, by that decision. But once you sort of internalize what your own expectations are and decide the what is enough for me, it changes everything. I had that. I got asked that, right? What is what is enough? How did you define that? Or is it just something that you were there? You know, I think that it just comes from what per sense of purpose that you have and what you're getting back from your contribution. And I was working nonstop. And my marriage ended during my time at eBay. And, you know, there was just a lot of different things that were occurring to me. My friendships were only work friends. You know, I didn't really have hobbies or interests outside of work. And it just started feeling more and more empty. And, and is that what I want for the next 20 years? That's what I've done for the first 20. Is that what I want for the next 20? And the answer just became no. And I didn't know what, what I did want. Uh, it took me a year and a half almost to get through my midlife crisis. So, was Did you find that on the walk? Or did the walk sort of prepare you to get to a place to find enough? I think it solidified it for me. I think by that point I had you know, not been in a traditional career environment or job environment for about seven years. And... Um, and I didn't feel finished. I didn't feel finished working, contributing. I still wanted to be part of the community that I lived in and uh, felt like there was something still to do. And um, yeah, it happened to be the hardest job I will ever have. When you look back or you were to give advice to folks in the business world on how to define success and find purpose at work and create a space that offers others and empowers others for that purpose. 
now sort of where you're at and finding enough and finding that, what advice would you have for somebody wrestling with that, that they're there and feel sort of that restlessness? Yeah, it's, it's a very risky thing to do. And I think a certain level of risk aversion is healthy in the space of leadership. Um, but I think also, and I struggle oftentimes with language that we use commonly. And so when I talk about staff, I'm talking about the group of people who make Dorothy's house work every day. And if I am able to make them feel happy and fulfilled and safe and like they want to continue contributing in their jobs, which is a very high stress, um, very dark emotional place to work in every day, then I've succeeded. Right. Is it so much about giving them that or giving them sort of the space for them to take that? It's, it's a combination. I can't give that to them, but right. I can create an environment hopefully and hopefully also the resources and services uh, that, you know, make them feel like they deserve that. Um, in our space, you, there's n no way that this trauma doesn't transfer to you on some level and finding the self-care that's necessary for each individual. It's different for everybody, how we recover from, from this kind of work environment. Um, you know, we, we have to be flexible. Do you look back on it and think it's, you said earlier that it's risky, right? The new currency in leadership is vulnerability and authenticity. Katrina Lake with Stitch Fix, a great quote from her. And it seems like such a risky bet to, to lead with love over fear, to lead with vulnerability and authenticity over power and control, right? But it, I mean, it seems risky, but is it? I mean, do you look back on your time and think, it felt like the distance from where I was to where I wanted to be was a million miles. It was impossible. Do you look back on it and think, man, it was like, it was three feet. <laughs> no, it's a million miles and a million miles more, um, <laughs> for sure. Uh, because when I started down this journey, I didn't even know if it would be possible. And in order to establish a place like Dorothy's house isn't inconceivable, but it's not normal. And so there wasn't really a roadmap for doing it. And there were a lot of hurdles that I didn't know how high they would be when I started working with human services organizations around the state um, and other divisions who would become referral agencies to us. I did not know how high those hurdles would be, so we just had to try. And I think that the the failure is that we weren't able to help people. And, and I didn't know if we would or wouldn't. But in, at the end of the day, if we weren't able to help people, um, you just unwind the business. And that would be terrible and tragic because you're very hopeful going into something like this. But if you can't do it, if it's not possible to help people with this level of trauma in their lives, you stop trying eventually. Um, but we have found such amazing success in helping in not really because we're not doing this for them we're providing a place for them to affect change in their own lives right. and what we're finding is there are a subset of individuals with deep levels of trauma who are willing and able to do the work to affect change in their own lives i mean in essence that's sort of the 
the trick or the lie they've bought into is that someone else can offer them that or do that for them. That's the trade. That's, that's what they, that's the bet they bought. Right. And now it's, I can't, I'm not going to do this for you. I'm going to create a space and I'm going to empower you, but you have to do it. And we take a lot of boundaries out of the way for them. You know, if there has been debt imposed upon them during this crime, identity theft, um, physical and mental health conditions that they have to overcome, addiction, they have a lot of hurdles. And we certainly work very hard to bring resources to reduce those barriers and those hurdles. Because for some people at 22 years old with $30,000 of debt, it's a hole too deep and no idea how to get out it. And so if we can level the field a little bit so that the hard work of recovering your heart and your soul is possible because you don't worry about how you're going to pay rent tomorrow, then the job seems a little more achievable. If folks want to help, folks want to get involved, what are different opportunities for people to help and also find more about um, the work that you guys are doing? What are some ways people can learn more and find ways to help? So obviously we're a not-for-profit 501c3 and all of our funding is private currently. Um, Right now we have four bedrooms. Um, In 2020, we're rebuilding our second home to add five more bedrooms. And we think with nine bedrooms in the metro area, it's about as much as you need residentially. But what we need to then start doing and and have plans for next year is to start moving into non-residential support and intervention for this crime. So working with kids who are in shelter or in different systems of care who are already being exposed to this crime, how can we interrupt and give them the tools they need to prevent getting further involved, especially while they're in our systems of care, and then doing non-residential support for women who don't need housing so that our reach is not nine, it's 900. Do you guys have a website? Dorothyshouse.org. Got it. And so they can go there, learn some more information. Um, Money's probably a good way. Treasure is a good way to be able to help. Uh, are there volunteer opportunities? What's that look like? Yep. So, so cash contributions are what we always need most. And I think any charity would say that. Um, but volunteerism is unique at Dorothy's house uh, because, first of all, it's it can oftentimes be a, a very much one-way love street. Uh, so you're giving without getting back oftentimes. But uh, we find that unique opportunities where you can take what you already do or what you love do and un- apply it to our home. So we have a man who comes in and does a writer's workshop and helps girls learn self-expression through writing, which is so powerful. We have a woman who comes in and teach music lessons, um, all the crafts and arts and stuff that people can imagine, you know, come to bear. We do equine guided coaching. Um, and much of this kind of contribution is through volunteers and our book club provider. She comes and, and moderates a book club for us. And those are the opportunities where through those volunteer relationships, they can establish relationships with girls that help them learn that process. Well, I really appreciate you coming in. And I appreciate you sharing your story. I think your journey is really powerful and inspiring. And I think the work you're doing is, is, is awesome. And I think there's so much to be able to be learned from it. I think often life is finding your sense of self-worth 
defining for yourself and taking what success looks like and, and really learning then to live well within that vulnerability. And I just, I think you live that out um, uh, in a really powerful way that creates a lane and a space for, for other people, uh, the most vulnerable of vulnerable to be able to do that. So it means a lot that you came and, and talked with us and shared this story. So thank you. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the What's Up Grub podcast. If you like the conversation and want to hear more, please check us out on any social media outlet, Facebook, Instagram. If you want all the long form videos, we do have a page on YouTube and we can be found anywhere you can download a podcast. Just type in What's Up Grub. And I thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening. And we'd love to engage and hear more from you.